if you're visiting with us, my name is Josh. I'm the campus pastor of the Point Church here in Alberta. We are one church in two locations here and over at Perdido Key. We are glad that you are here. Um, the Sausage Festival, it's more than just a tent for us. We're going to have the tent like, like Pastor John talked about, but we are also going to have some golf carts where we're going to be shuttling people who are parking. We're going to have uh, four bounce houses that we're going to be manning throughout the day. Um, we're also going to have some parking attendants. So please uh, get with Miles or sign up online. We'll, we'll get the sign up to include the other events in addition to the tent this week. Um, so that's going on. And then as the other announcement tonight, we've got connect groups going again. We've got a connect group over at the Kickler's house that meets at five o'clock. And then there's one at my house that meets at 530. If you are not connected to a connect group, uh, see me or Wayne or Shane and we'll get you plugged in. We want you to be part of a group as you study the word of God together. So that's that. Would you stand with me? As I mentioned the word of God, we are a, uh, we are a church of the Bible. And so we want the, the word of God to be active in our lives. We want it to be something that we're talking about on a regular basis. And, and so part of that is that we have a family discipleship verse. Every week we say this together and then my hope for you is that you're taking this out of here, that you're meditating on it throughout the week. It's on your bulletin and, and just using that throughout your life, applying it to your life. So let's say this together. It's going to be Psalm 95 verses 1 and 2. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. Oh, Psalm 95.1. Sorry, guys. That's my, my fault. I thought we had two. Okay. So we have one more? No, no. Okay, please. Sit. <laughs> that was a little awkward. No worries. How's your guys' week been? We'll just move on. We'll pretend if we don't tell anybody, it never happened, right? So we'll just keep that between us. Uh, my week has been kind of busy. I'm not going to lie. Um, the remodel's been going on. I told you guys a little bit about that last week, um, and, and it has quite literally taken over my life. I've been on leave from the Navy for the last two weeks. That ends tomorrow, so I get to go back to my real job uh, tomorrow. Um, but I've been what 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 all of this means for me is is that I've been waking up in the morning and and. Tama's, Tama's serving next door, so I can say this. I, I'm going to brag on my wife real quick. I wake up every morning, and I'm not really sure how it happens, but most mornings I wake up and there's a cup of coffee on the nightstand. Like, it's awesome. Um, I don't know how it started, but it, like, Tama's doing that. Anyway, so what that means is that I wake up in the morning, and I have a cup of coffee, I do a quick Bible study, and then I'm getting to work on the house. Um, and so, like, yesterday I worked until about 9 o'clock at night. The, the house remodel has taken over my life. Um, in fact, I, I kind of feel like I've been living for the remodel, living for getting my kitchen together. And, and as I thought about that, I, I couldn't help but think that there are a lot of things that we tend to live our lives for. That things that, whether they're good or bad, um, we end up living for them. And sometimes that's on purpose, and sometimes it's not. Uh, maybe we're living for a job or a vacation that we want to uh, go on. Maybe it's, it's for a team or a club that we are part of. Um, I think sometimes our kids' sports can kind of take over our lives. We live to get our kids to their sports games or to their activities at school. Uh, we end up living for a lot of things, and, and while a lot of those things are good things, they're not the ultimate thing, right? Um, so as followers of Jesus, we believe that, that Christ has placed us here for a mission. I tell you guys that every Sunday. We are here for a mission. It's, it's not to be here on Sunday. Um, 
We're not here to live for ourselves. We're not here to live for all of these things. We're here to be living for Christ. We want to be living for the eternal. And that's, that's the title of today's message, living for the eternal. So as we continue our study in the book of Colossians, uh, we're going to see Paul outline just that. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, would you open them up to Colossians chapter 3? We are halfway through the book of Colossians. We will be done before you know it. Um, but Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Paul wrote, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin to look at your text, as we begin to look at this letter that Paul wrote to us, would you show us what it means to live for you, to live for the eternal? God, get me out of the way. Speak clearly to each of us today that we would walk out of here refreshed and encouraged, ready to go out and live the mission that you've given us, to live for you. God, be with us today as we look through this text. We love you, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So, we are now in our eighth week in our study in the book of Colossians, which we've entitled, It's All About Jesus, right there on the screens. Um, and my prayer for you as we've been studying through this book is, is that, that as you study, as you learn, as we go verse by verse through this, you are falling more in love with Jesus, that you're recognizing that your faith, what you do day in and day out as you're living for Christ, that it's really, it's all about Jesus. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, and we saw Paul demonstrate that, we, when, that as we live out our faith, we've really got kind of two options, right? We, we talked about um, rules, which, which leave us empty, and they don't, they don't spur any kind of heart change. They, they, leave us, um, they, they don't lead us to, to love and follow Jesus, or we can live in relationship with Christ, and when we live in relationship with Christ, we can actually have the heart change. We can actually go on the mission that he set us here to live. This week, as, as we continue into chapter 3, I want you to see that as we live in relationship with Christ, he's going to lead us to live um, not just for the things of this world, not for house remodels for me or, or sports teams or jobs or any other temporal thing, but for the eternal in fact, in our text today, we can see Paul outline kind of three habits, three behaviors that will enable us to live for the eternal. So let's, let's do this, okay? Let's get at it um, right into the text. And as we begin looking at the text in verse 1, um, we ought to immediately be captured by the going in assumption that Paul carries here. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ. And while we see the word if in our English translations, uh, in the Greek, that word e is, um, could easily mean since or because. In fact, if you read an NIV translation of the Bible, that's how that group of translators, as they looked at the Greek text, as they were translating it, that's how they translated it. So they, they interpreted the text saying, since then you have been raised with Christ. And I believe that's the right understanding of what Paul is getting at here. In the context of the whole letter, Paul has been building this argument, this idea that, that we have been raised with Christ already. 
We saw this a few uh, verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So as we begin to consider this idea of living for the eternal, as, as we think about its importance, it, it's important for us to recognize that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple, you have already been raised to newness of life with Jesus. When Christ left the tomb, he was raised on high and is now enthroned in glory at God's right hand. What, what does that mean for those of us who've been united with him in his death and resurrection? It means we continue to live on this earth in our mortal bodies, but we have embarked on a new journey, a new way of life, and the dri driving power that's enabling us to follow this way of life is imparted by, by Christ from his position in glory, where he now resides. What we need to recognize is that our eternal position is secure. When you're a Christian, you're, you're secure, you're there. That's the opening assumption that Paul begins with here in chapter 3. We've been set free from bondage, uh, and from, from sin and death, as we discussed last week, and we are free to live to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says to do. That's the first habit Paul encourages us to develop as we live for the eternal. Paul wrote in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If we want to live for the eternal, then we need to seek the things that are above. That word seek in the Greek is zetao. It, it, it means to investigate, to strive for, to aim at. There's more weight behind it than what we would think of when we hear the, the Greek or the, the English word for seek, right? I mean, um, I think a lot of us associate that word with something a little bit more passing. We grew up playing like hide-and-go-seek, right? Anybody? Am I the only one who played lots of hide-and-go-seek? Um, and, and I remember playing it with my cousins a lot back in Tacoma, Washington. Um, and I distinctly remember playing at their house. I don't remember playing at mine, but I remember playing at their house. And how, how it worked for us is we would, somebody, whoever was it, you know, had to count to 100 um, while everybody went and hid, right? And when you got to 100, then you had to go search and you'd start looking in the, like the superficial places, the places where, you know, like under the table or in the closet if you're inside. Or if you're outside, you'd look up in a tree or, you know, maybe somebody crawled under a car because back then cars were safe. It's not like today. Um, but anyway, um, you would look and if you couldn't find them after a few minutes, you would, what would you yell? Does anybody remember? Ollie, Ollie, oxen free! No clue. I actually looked it up. I have no clue what that means. No clue whatsoever, except like, I give up. Come on out, right? That's, I guess, what it means. But you would, you would shout that out, and, and everybody would come back, and you'd play all over again, right? That's hide-and-go-seek. But uh, that's not the kind of seeking that Paul is talking about here in the text. That, that kind of looking is superficial and brief. It, it lasts for a moment, and then it's over. And as I said, there's more weight behind what Paul is telling us to do here. If we're going to live for the eternal, we need to seek, we need to strive for, we need to take aim for the things that are above. This is an intentional, grace-driven effort. It requires us to actively work as we live in the power of Christ, as we live knowing that we are eternally secure. We do this by daily and deliberately committing ourselves to the values of Christ and his kingdom. 
and by daily and deliberately living out those values. That's, that's what it means um, by the things that are above. They're the values of Christ and his kingdom. But, but what are the values of Christ and his kingdom? What are those? I think Jesus kind of outlined them very well for us back in Matthew chapter 22. You see, this Pharisee came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right there, um, as, as we look at those, those words, those are the values of Christ and his kingdom. You see, Jesus responded to that Pharisee with what's called the Shema. It's a prayer that Jews prayed every single day. That Pharisee prayed that prayer every single day. They wrote it and they put it on their clothes and they put it on their doorposts. What he's reciting to them is what we know as Deuteronomy 6.5 and then he's tagging on Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5 refers to a wholehearted devotion to God from every aspect of your being, emotionally, your, your heart, volitionally, the decisions of your mind, your soul, or cognitively, your, your mind, heart, soul, and mind. This kind of heart and soul and mind love for God will naturally result in obedience to all that he's commanded. If you love God with your whole heart, with all of your soul and all of your mind, you're naturally going to follow these commands, which is why Jesus is is able to say that all the law and the prophets are summed up by them, that they all hang on these commands. The second command comes from, like I said, Leviticus 19.18, and it's reminding us that God's love for us overflows out of us into love for other people. So what we see here is that the greatest commandment has both a vertical component where we love God, but it's also got a horizontal component where we love people, we love others. These two commandments are the greatest because all others flow out of them. All others depend on them. In other words, all of the commandments of Scripture, all of the 613 Mosaic laws, all of them can be summed up in these two commands, which we can actually narrow down to just four words. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Those are the, the values of Christ in his kingdom. And we live those out daily and deliberately. We love God with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind, and we love people. And when we love people, we're loving the unlovable. It's so easy to love the lovable people, right? It's easy to love people that are like us, people that we like. But we're called to love those who it's difficult to love. That jerk, the the person who's wronged us, and we do it deliberately, which means that there are going to be times, church, there's going to be times where it is hard to love people. But those are our values. That's what we are called to. When we love people enough to share the gospel with them, then we're starting to capture our values, the values of Christ and his kingdom. Those are the things that are above that we're going to seek after. And I want you to recognize that the reason we seek after these things, the reason we're going after them is it's right here in the text. He says we do this because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We seek the things that are above because Christ is above 
The statement itself is a bold profession of the deity of Christ and his sovereign rule over all things. It's a direct reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, where David sang, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But it's also a reminder of the the source of our motivation to seek the things that are above. We do it because that's where Jesus is. We seek to be like Christ because we want to be with Christ. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about heaven, but its central feature is clear. Heaven is where Christ is. Heaven is where he is reigning and where the people of God, his followers, his disciples, Christians have their citizenship. We seek the things that are above because Christ reigns there and we want to be there with him. That's the first habit habit that we want to foster. We want to seek the things that are above. And the second habit Paul wants us to foster is similar to the first, but but it's got a kind of slightly different point of emphasis. Take a look with me at verse 2. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The second habit we ought to foster as we strive to live for the eternal is that you set your minds on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. And at first, that almost sounds like it's just a reiteration of what Paul just said, right? It sounds like he's just saying the same thing, but there's more nuance here. You see, the verb translated in, in most translations as set your minds, uh, it means to think, to hold, or, or to form an opinion. Paul is telling us not only do we seek the things that are above, but we think about them. This isn't referring to a, a purely mental exercise or intellectual process, but to a more fundamental orientation of the will. It, it suggests a basic inner attitude that lies behind and, and is part of the seeking that we saw in verse 1. We, we do this kind of thing all the time. We just don't really think about it. For example, um, have you ever decided that you needed to go on a diet, right? Like, yeah, I know I have. Um, maybe it's just me. Um, in, in fact, um, when I first moved down here, um, coming back to the Pensacola area, um, Miles said something to me. He, he said, Josh, you, you're looking really thin. And, and, and secretly, he, he like, he made my day. Like, I can't tell you how excited he made me. Um, but the reality is, is that I lost almost 30 pounds when I was out at sea because there's nothing to do on the boat except eat really bad food and work out and fly. So uh, I was able to lose a bunch of weight there. Um, but he, he made my day, right? Um, but as, as I sought to lose weight, that, as I thought about like, okay, I'm, I'm, I could stand to trim out a little bit. Um, as I, that was the seek, right? I, I'm going to seek to lose some weight. But, um, but as I started thinking about it, I realized I had to set my mind to it. And, and let me explain what that looked like for me. Um, in order to, to accomplish the goal of losing some weight so that I wouldn't get kicked out of the Navy right before I retire, I, I had to shift my orientation towards diet and exercise, right? Um, what did that look like for me? Um, it meant that I went to the gym every single day I was at sea regardless of whether I wanted to or not. Um, and it also meant that I never, ever went to mid-rats. Anybody know what mid-rats is? See, on, at, at sea, there are four meals a day. There's breakfast. No aviator ever goes to breakfast. We're busy sleeping. There's lunch. There's dinner. And then there's mid-rats, which stands for midnight rations. Anybody ever woken up for like a midnight snack? It's like that on steroids, 
Like seriously, it is, it is all of your favorite breakfast foods and then whatever's left over from dinner. And in the aviation community, um, it's kind of like the holy meal of the day. So after the flight schedule is over, after everything is done, all the air crew go down to the wardroom and they just like gorge themselves on all this delicious breakfast food and dinner and, and you, basically you're just setting yourself up for a giant food coma before you go to bed, right? And you're doing that at midnight. Well, um, that is apparently not super healthy, so I decided that I had to skip mid-rats. And that's kind of what this text is talking about here. It's setting the orientation of our will on the things that are, that are above. It's, it's positioning ourselves under the guidance of, and, and influence of the Holy Spirit to develop habits that will enable us to achieve that which we seek. In, in order to live for the eternal, we need to have habits for the eternal. And, and building those habits isn't easy. It takes a lot of work. I read an article in Psychology Today this last week that said that um, a recent study showed that it can take up to 66 days of doing a good, good activity every day before that becomes a good habit. 66 days, right? So if we're going to develop these habits, we've got to have the effort into them. If you're going to seek the things that are above, then we need to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. You see, our natural inclination, our natural, our natural drift is not toward holiness. It's not toward Christ. It's not towards the things that are above, but towards the things that are on the earth, uh, which is why Paul says to not set our minds on the things that are on the earth. The Bible teacher and author Don Carson wrote about this, and um, I want you to read what he said. This is a fairly long quote here, but I want you to, to really kind of listen to what he's saying here. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We We have to choose to set our minds on the values of Christ and his kingdom. We have to choose that every single day, constantly pressing ourselves, developing the habits of prayer and obedience to scripture and faith and delight in the Lord. We have to work towards that. If we want to live for the eternal, we need to push with grace-driven effort deeper into Christ and his kingdom. We need to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We need to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that, that, earth, that are on earth, the things that distract us from Christ and from his mission that we're, we're always inundated with. The scholar N.T. Wright said that to concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ, on that unique blend of love and strength revealed in the Gospels, is to begin on earth to reflect the very life of heaven. Our eternal position is secure we're already citizens of heaven. We are sojourners here. This isn't our home. So we seek the things that are above because we, and, and we set our mind on the things that are above because that's where we belong. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you want to be with Jesus. 
if you don't want to be Jesus, with Jesus, I, I would contend that you need to kind of search your heart. Ask the hard question, am I really a disciple? Am I really a follower of Christ? You want to be with Jesus in heaven because that's where Jesus is. That's where you belong. Those are the first two habits that Paul uh, encourages us in the text to, to enable us to live for the eternal. But I, I want you to see what I think is probably the most important habit of all. In verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is bookending the first two habits with, with this idea here. Remember, he began in verse 1 by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, and now here he's saying, for you have died. And as we've been working through this letter, I hope that you've started to pick up on Paul's theme throughout the entire letter that, that these two ideas of, of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, they're inseparable. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been buried with Christ, but you've also been raised with him. The definition of what it means to be a Christian is that you have died with Christ, but that you've also been raised with him. So Paul, Paul brackets, he, he bookends these two habits, and it's in the bookend that we find the third habit. He's, it, that third habit is that we surrender your life. And I, I would just insert completely. Surrender your life completely to Christ. Let me show you what I'm talking about here, because this one's not quite as obvious. As we've been studying our text, why do you seek the things that are above? Why do you set your mind on the things that are above? Because you've died with Christ, and you've been raised with Christ. Paul exhorts Christians to think on the things of heaven, not only because they've died with Christ to the flesh, but also because they've been raised with him and participate in his resurrection life. Paul said, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden with Christ because we died with him and we have been raised with him to new life. That's what happens when we first surrender our lives to Christ. We die to self and we live to Christ. We're going to see this more in the weeks to come as we press further into chapter 3. But, but right here in verse 3, Paul tags on this little in God to the statement. He says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what he means is that because Christ himself has his being in God, those who belong to Christ have their being there too. Have you ever been somewhere that, that even though you knew you were supposed to be there, you felt like, ah, I don't belong here? No, just, just me, just me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but an aircraft carrier has actually two bridges. The bridge is where they control the ship from, right? That's, that's like the central control for the whole ship. And the, the aircraft carrier has two of them. There's the navigation bridge. That's where the officer of the deck, who's the guy in charge of driving the ship is, the, the helmsman who steers it, the lee helmsman who controls the throttles, the lookouts, all of them are, are on the bridge, the navigation bridge. And that is a holy place. Like you have to ask permission. You have to have a cover, which we talked about last week. Um, but that's the holy place of the ship, right? But there's also the flag bridge. And the flag bridge, that's like the holy of holies. That's the admiral's bridge. Only the admiral and his invited guests 
are allowed to be on the flag bridge. Back in 2014 and 2015, I served on the Admiral's staff on an aircraft carrier, and I was not only allowed to go to the flag bridge, but I was encouraged to go to the flag bridge. And every single time I went there, every single time, without fail, I felt like I was about to get yelled at, like I didn't belong there. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that when it comes to my relationship with God. And I think that that's because I recognize my own sinful nature. But that's the beauty of the gospel. You see, in in Christ Jesus, God sees me like he sees Jesus. He doesn't see me as, as a sinful, unclean person. He sees me as holy and righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I belong with Christ in God because Jesus Christ took my sin. And he paid the price that I couldn't pay. And, and when I surrender my life to Christ, when I repent and I make him the Lord of my life, I gain his righteousness. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where you belong because of Jesus. God sees me like he sees Christ. He sees you like he sees Christ. And although some may understand the point of this statement here to be the safety of believers, which it certainly is, Paul also used it to refer to a source of believers' lives the new life source, that that which sustains Christians, it's Christ. We join Christ when we first surrender to Christ, but we must continue to surrender to him. It's a daily effort. And by doing so, we're keeping Christ in a position of lordship in our lives. And we see the results of this in the first half of verse 4. Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How can Christ actually be your life? You've got to be surrendered to Christ, completely surrendered to the point where your life is defined not by who you think you are, but by who Christ is to the point where you can say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ. You see, there's, there's an implication in the statement that Christ is your life. What's implied in that statement is, is that you have so surrendered your life to Christ that you simply cannot conceive of your life in any meaningful way apart from Jesus and the work that he's done. Your personal identity is so inextricably wrapped up in who Christ is and, and what he's accomplished, that it simply makes no sense to think of, 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 of a me independent of Christ. That that's how too closely those two are supposed to be tied together. That's what it means for Christ to be your life. And although we might sound a little strange saying, Christ is my life, I want you to recognize that we do this all the time with all sorts of other things. I've heard people say things like, football is my life. People will eat, breathe, sleep, football. There there was a period where I would have said that the Navy was my life. My identity, my value, my worth was who I was as an officer, how I performed in the aircraft. That's where I found my identity. But Paul is saying, Christ is your life. 
So let me ask you this today. What is your life? How would you complete the statement, my life is blank? How would you complete that? Is is your job your life? Is your family your life? Is your home your life? Is your, the car you drive or the presence that you create on social media your life? What defines you? What fills your daily thoughts? What, where do you find your identity? Where do you find your value and your worth? Because what Paul is saying is that for Christians, because we've died with Christ, because we've been raised with Christ, because our lives are hidden with Christ in God, because of all of that, Christ is your life. If you live for Christ, you work for Christ. You you raise your family for Christ. You serve your community for Christ. You find your value in Him. You find your worth in who you are in Him. Every aspect of your life is for Christ, and you do it because you've surrendered to him. Christ is your life. But when you've surrendered your life to Christ, he's not just your life. Take a look again at verse 4. Paul writes, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life, but he's also your hope, too. Because we have died with Christ and been buried and raised with him, we will share in his glory. And in the in-between time, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're able to anticipate the hope of glory and live in the good of it. When we've surrendered to Christ, he becomes our empowering hope. He enables us to work and serve and follow him, but he won't leave us here forever. We're not left to ourselves. Christ will return, and when he returns, he's clearly going to identify us as his own. The Bible scholar Peter O'Brien commented that Christ is now enthroned in heaven at God's right hand. But when he appears at the end of days, at the second coming, he will become, it will become plain that his own are with him. The day of the revelation of the Son of God will also be the day of the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. We have a hope that that on Christ's return, we will be permanently and eternally with Christ. Our future hope includes being made more into the likeness of Christ. The, The Apostle John said the same thing in his first letter. He wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ is our hope and our life when we surrender to Christ. And knowing the future, knowing that we will one day join him in his glory, we are emboldened and empowered to live on mission for him. And in the end, that's that's what living for the eternal really is. It's living on mission for Jesus. It's living the mission that Christ set us here to live. We aren't here for ourselves. We're here to serve God. We're here to love people to the point of life, Jesus Christ. We're here to share the gospel, to to help people just as broken sinners find Jesus. 
because he's helped us and we love him because of that. He's reconciled us to him and we love him because of that. So we overflow in that love for other people and we share the gospel with him, with, the, with them. That's what this Who's Your One campaign we've been talking about is all about. It's not something we have to do. It's, it's not like some, some legalistic thing that we have to do. We do it because we love God and because of what he's done for us and it just overflows out of us. And it doesn't have to be hard for you guys. It doesn't have to be this big ordeal. It's just an overflow of, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. I am not the same person that I was before. Christ changed me. He can change you too. If we want to live for the eternal, we've got to seek the things that are above. We've got to set our minds on the things that are above and we've got to surrender our lives daily and completely to Christ. Can we pray? Let's pray.